up, everybody? Welcome to The Palette, Season 3, Episode 4. We are totally not so low-key in love with our guest today, Asia Upchurch. And we're not the only ones. Yeah, Asia is pretty much the best. And as you'll hear in a second, she's got an amazing sense of humor and so much knowledge about navigating the world as an artist, educator, choreographer, advocate, and so many other things. One of the things I love about Asia and that we get into a bit on this show is how she titles herself as a seed planter and soil agitator. I super aspire to come up with my own amazing metaphor for what I do in the world. Hashtag goals. One day we will get there. Joss, there's such a nice balance of giggling and wisdom in this episode. And gardening metaphors and dear so-and-sos. And sidebars and deep thoughts. And self-made sound effects and tensions and hip-hop pedagogy. <sighs> Damn, this is a good episode. You guys are about to find out. The dope part about this stage of the podcast, too, is that we have a real flow going as hosts. In case you couldn't tell. And Asia fell right into that vibe. It doesn't hurt also that we admire the crap out of her. Yes, Aisha, thank you so much for blessing the show with your spirit. We are so down to have you on, and we're really excited to share our conversation with Aisha with all of you. Let's get to this amazing interview. We've been having a lovely chat in the studio this morning with Aisha Upchurch. We're so glad to have her on the program today. We're really lucky and honored that she's here talking with us. She's an alumna of the program that Nima and I are currently in, Arts and Education, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Shout out to Steve Seidel. Woo woo. Foss, friends of Steve Seidel. Yeah, Aisha, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And can you tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are for those who, for some reason, do not know you? Well, March 15th, 1980. (laughs) Take us back. (laughs) Um, No, I am an alum of the Arts and Education Program 2015. And uh, I came to to Harvard, to Cambridge, to Boston from uh, D.C., where I had been for many moons, living as um, an artist, as an educator, choreographer, had my own dance company, living as a human in the DMV area. Um, Before that, I um, born and raised from St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I grew up um, primarily on the north side of St. Louis. That's a very specific uh, place and an important part of of my identity and upbringing. Um, And I think just from a very young age, just being in my family, fourth born, having that divine (laughs) birth order, putting me in position just to learn and to observe the world around me. My mother sang, my dad helped like throw parts parties and manage for artists and so I don't know the world devoid of arts all the time grew up dancing with drummers singers that seems super natural to me um so and like who I am foundationally I think I am someone who arts are a huge part of my identity a huge part of the way that I navigate the world make meaning see things think about things and being a dancer some of my friends make fun of me but it's like hashtag legit like moving is also how I remember things Mm. Um, and that can be metaphorical and it can be really not meant to be that deep but like I don't have strong recalls so if I (laughs) mime something out with my body or like put a silly rap to it I think I got like bars maybe not 16 of them more like three and a half but if I like make a rhyme up about something and embody it then it actually does help me remember it I remember putting a rap together for the um or nicknames together for the uh what are those called? Those the elements, those like a hundred and something of them in a chart in science class mm, you learned. The periodic, periodic table. table. Thank you. Ooh, that was 
mm. strong recall over here. Yes. <laughs> well, I couldn't understand all those weird words and initials, so I gave them nicknames and made up a rap about it, um, which for me is probably like half jest and half truth around why I truly believe the arts um, are a powerful language and lens. And I think a lot of my work and who I am is around elevating and advocating for that language to have space at the table, for that perspective to have space at the table. Yeah, I'm sure there's other specifics. Oh, well, you know, take it back to the top. <laughs> who yes. is Asia Upchurch? Church, 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 church. I don't uh, have to do anything in post. There's just... nothing being mixed right now. This is all coming out of Asia's mouth. E de nada. Um, <laughs> Well, I do identify myself as a dancing diplomat, um, as a seed planter, a soil agitator, and a curious and passionate uh, artist and educator. I do feel like part of the way that I navigate the world as an artist and a human is to plant seeds along with other divine gardeners, if you will, to take up root and help folks reconnect with the power that's already there around how they are, who they are especially in educational places. And when I was a under, in undergrad at American University in D.C., I majored in international relations. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be the first black female U.N. ambassador for the States. Patricia Roberts Harris was the first African-American woman in U.S. history to hold the rank of ambassador when she was appointed ambassador to Luxembourg on June 4, 1965. She was presented her credentials on September 7th, and she served until September 22nd, 1967. Someone else has done that, but I thought at that time I was going to, like, um, be next at bat. Then I was like, oh, man, I really want to study musical theater because hashtag Asia likes musical theater for the folks listening. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, and I've already done, like, all these credits and international relations and... How's it all going to work together? And a friend just jokingly said, she's like, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out later. You'll be a dancing diplomat. And that was like said in passing. And she said it so with such certainty. And then years later, it's kind of walked out that way. And so mm-hmm. I think calling, naming my own position that I feel comfortable with and calling myself a dancing diplomat is just kind of like speaking to that nugget of prophecy that was said as a, as a joke. Um, but really, that does feel more comfortably correct for how I consider how I go about doing my work. I love that. There's so many facets to your your personality and your story and the way you've developed and shaped this identity. I did want to ask about the dancing diplomat thing in particular and Mm -hmm. those previous studies, um, because I believe you have one other degree in Mm -hmm. addition to the political science undergrad degree or international relations, excuse me? Yes. So my bachelor's is in international studies. I originally um, at American was went straight to grad school for a double master's in international peace and conflict resolution and Mm. secondary ed. I was going to be a social studies teacher. It was in that last year of my undergrad going into the first year of my graduate program, I started already taking some coursework that I got hip to Um, this lane of studies called Peace Studies and Nonviolent Education. I started becoming much more curious about this work of um, diplomacy and peace studies through education. And I had professors who weren't necessarily calling it, weren't listing it as a pedagogy um, or using that terminology, but it was very, very eye-opening. And I don't know if it's right to say it shifted 
my trajectory, I think the trajectory that I am on is the one that I've been meant to be on, but I thought it was going to go a different route before coming into contact with these courses. And where was your political consciousness at? How, how has your political consciousness evolved whilst getting all these degrees and yeah. programs and educating yourself? Great question. So growing up in St. Louis, I didn't have the language of black and brown, just black and white, because essentially St. Louis was very literally black or white type of place. And my father was very involved in um, civil rights and even a little bit more could be strongly defined terms around black identity and, and nationalism. And I think also that is a part of before I had language and academic language to qualify it, that very much informed how I never thought anything was wrong with being black. I never experienced like schools trying to re-educate me on who I am mm. racially or ethnically um, because it came so strongly from my home and my home community. I say this with a lot of pride and with a lot of um, bittersweetness that I grew up in a very black neighborhood middle class maybe a little bit higher level working class neighborhood but like we were a community like if my mom ain't home I go next door I know like that's child care is right there on the block um you go around the corner get a dollar's worth of bologna dollar's worth of cheese the, the deli people they know you like it's it was all very family and if you were not of the community there was not a huge police presence because we in a sense like had established folks in the in the neighborhood who mm-hmm. who knew was who knew was supposed to be there, who wasn't supposed to be there. And you got taken care of if you weren't supposed to be there. So, um, and and I think that's a beautiful thing to have grown up with. And it breaks my heart that I don't see a lot of that now. For me, um, having said all of that, I think innately Black Lives Matter has always been something that I have felt even before it's been this movement or a hashtag that some people throw around. Um, I grew up in a community where the mattering of our lives was never up for contest within our community. And when somebody or other forces came in, like, well, I know that history. Like, you know, my, my parents, my whole aunties, auntie, uncles, the whole nine who were fictive and actual kin, like we knew who we were. So that type of mattering internally never needed a lot of rallying, but we did understand why it was so important for them to make sure that these little um, black children, brown-skinned children, knew that they were humans. Um, And so that has been so beautiful to me, and I think it informs when I am in a space with young people. If I sense, and I'm not trying to take the place of anybody, mama, daddy, or or family member, because I'm not them, but if I sense that there is some detachment from that type of knowing, then I feel like it is my obligation, having grown up with that, to do something to offer something to that space, through, be it through dance or some other artistic outlet or through conversation to help that person reconnect to that narrative that I think is really there. I'm not placing it there. It just has gotten clouded out. So now, having been through this Ivy League institution, like, I am completely aware that that very neighborhood of folk who I grew up with, like, it's a big deal. Um, I don't take it lightly. I also knew very well where I was attending. I've only attended predominantly white higher education institutions, so I'm aware of all of those dynamics. But there's a certain part of my identity that has I never offer up for an, for an institution to question or mm. to make me feel like I don't belong here. Harvard is mine because of how exclusive is set up like 
I feel like the jig is up. Like, uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> not sorry. Like, I'm here. We're here, folks, who these institutions weren't designed for. And even ways of meaning making that weren't seen. Like, I, I love the arts and education program and the students that come through every year. It's like, I feel like there's this advocacy to us even being here in a program that's like still making the point like there's another way of existing and making meaning in the world. And so um, that was a lot of talking, but all of that to say, I feel like my my consciousness, there is no, I don't think there's an end point to a consciousness development. It's a constant journey and I keep learning other things that I've not thought about and I'm up for that challenging. I don't, I, I, I want to keep growing. I don't want to be somebody who has breath in the body but is living a dead life consciously you know I want to talk more specifically about the projects that you're working on because I've seen you tap dance while bagpipes are playing you mentioned (laughs) working with children you're the AIE artist in residence Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit more about how critical consciousness plays into your practice and the work that you're doing right now yeah so as a um artists and residents, I am using this uh, collaborative performance and project that um, had an opportunity to start to celebrate IE's 20th uh, anniversary last year with a cellist and myself as a rhythm tap dancer. As a dancer, I primarily navigate in forms that are in the African diaspora, so tap, hip-hop, West African movement, um, and all the beautiful, like, fusions thereof. What's happened in, in, in the tracking of this tap cello collaboration is a lot of, of my own thinking has opened up around how do I listen? What are these two instruments, these two art forms metaphor for? And when um, Patrick, who's the cellist, when we were both getting together to do this, we had this conversation around like capital A art and then art and this idea of research and this idea of these preconceived hierarchies of who should even be at a table having a conversation together and how I we both wanted to push against that even Patrick coming from a classical classically trained background and myself coming from a background that's more kind of vernacular improv based folks could say it's like I don't think one form should be traditional treated as the form to know, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Aisha Upchurch does her own vocal effect. Um, and, and I think that the consciousness part of that is I'm in spaces here at Harvard and also at Salem State University where I'm in dance and performance uh, departments instructing. And I think about all the ways that even as someone who grew up loving the performing arts, things were still presented to me in my black female body as like, well, this body doesn't really do that. Or they don't think of it's not supposed to do that. Like, this is the way bodies are supposed to look when they do this. Or, you know, this is art and this is this canon. And so through the nature of this residency, um, being able to put that exploration up as as uh, as um kind of the one of the primary lenses to think about what does this collaboration with these two forms um mean what is it metaphor for what is an opportunity for us to wonder about like why we assume certain folks have power in conversations versus others or certain art forms or you can fill in the blank and so it's been great to do that study we're coming up with some working in concert with two um current AIE students that's the design of the artist in residency program is that whoever the um artist is will have some small group of students to work with to to support larger inquiry but also to offer those students some space to investigate and one of the places of common inquiry is like what are the implications of like developing 
materials, like using cello tap as a case study. So I'm getting really excited to continue like interviewing different people who've seen the piece or do similar work to think about what does this performance open up as a way to create dialogue with students or, or again, facilitate students' own maybe suppressed voices around ways they want to not be pigeonholed as artists and as humans. And so I can't say I know exactly what these materials will look like yet because they're in process of being developed, but I am, in my other work as an arts administrator, I'm thinking about people who design collaborative projects and ways to use this artistic process as a model to look for different dynamics we kind of rush over and go, how can we plan for these issues of process versus product or mm. this power and permission thing? And, you know, how is the, what is really going on with this power and the opportunity to listen to someone who speaks a different language? You talked about being a was it seed planter and a soil agitator? Mm-hmm. And I feel like this ties into your identification as an advocate instead of an activist. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe tease out those two differences for us? Maybe. <laughs> um. Without a doubt, advocacy and activism mean different things to different people and can't really be contained by one strict definition. Kind of like someone like Asia can't be contained by one label. In this case, though, in case you're left wondering what is the difference, we thought we'd provide you with some good old dictionary definitions. Advocacy is the public support for or recommendation of a particular cause or policy. Synonyms are support for, backing of, promotion of, or championing of. Activism, on the other hand, is the policy or action of using vigorous campaigning to bring about political or social change. Thanks, Merriam-Webster. I mean, Jocelyn. I think I respect, not think, I know that I respect fervently those folks who assertively name their work um, as activism. Um, I don't qualify the way and the work that I do as that. I do feel like advocacy and activism are either sides of a coin are situated on some type of continuum or spectrum or there's some need of each of them working in concert with each other. Um, I feel like my role as an educator, I look for ways to advocate for less uh, or or routes that have not been upheld. And so I'm going to advocate for non-Western Eurocentric ways of teaching and calling dance dance. And I'm going to also advocate for um, different bodies, different um, racial bodies, ethnic bodies, gender bodies to not have to be pigeonholed into who said those bodies should move a certain way or not. And Mm -hmm. so I'm going to advocate for more critical ways of talking about dance, teaching dance, of talking about movement, of encouraging movement. This relationship between advocacy and activism and, and my role in that and this idea of being seed planter in versus and in conversation with like longer term kind of tending to is is a challenge at the ed school around particularly hip-hop education which is a very important lane for me in my work that students come through this rapid like nine-month educational pregnancy experiment every year and bring all of their curiosities their wonderings and they make these awesome things and not always is there a space for that to be taken up and returned to and fostered in the next year so um, I, rem- I looked back on my personal statement for, for the application for Harvard, and I was talking very 
very, very uh, directly about my love for and belief in elevating hip-hop education and pedagogy. So I did something while I was a student. The following year, some other students did something the following year, and there's not been a institutional memory. And so in this way, I feel like with this particular garden, I feel like my role has shifted to be a different type of advocate and like someone who's taking longer care of this thing that's keep happening. There's some amazing seed planters and soil agitators that come up with hip-hop education every year at the ed school. And so the last year's uh, crew created the hip-hop education initiative and they had a conference and Steve led some opening remarks. He said, this should definitely be the first of. And I took that as a like, okay, if I'm still around, I want to find some more students and help this be a next thing. And so we will be having a second conference on April 27th and 28th. And it's been great to find other students at the ed school who also feel very curious and and passionate about hip-hop education and want to make it happen in the hopes for that. And just as much of an advocate as I am for dance and for liberation bodies and education, I think I know that hip-hop education, there are amazing experts and practitioners in the field who are doing this work, are saying, why aren't we paying attention to this very strong language and lens in our classrooms? And so the I think t- the mission of the conference and in other efforts that are, are going to be going forward is to create a space at the ed school where folks who are coming every year with that curiosity, with that experience, can have a, a place to play in and to tend to that. And so the conference this year is my way as an alum and as someone who's still around to go, hey, Let's do this. I will I will be support. I will let you know what has happened. I will support what can happen. Let's make something happen institutionally to move it forward. And is that advocacy? Sure. Is that activism? I don't know. Is that responding to a need? Yes. I have two questions as follow-up to, to the things you've, you've been saying. One is um, related to hip-hop pedagogy, and one is related to this distinction we're kind of digging into mm-hmm. between advocacy and activism and, and how that how you define yourself around those terms mm-hmm. or not. When it comes to the advocate versus activist mm-hmm. labels, which let's just call them what they are. Sure. And I'm not we're we're not here to, you know, slap one on you or ask you why you're not another one, but to better understand these terms through your story and through sharing your experiences. When I hear you talk about diplomacy which you tied so beautifully to kind of being a cultural bridge, um, being sort of a cultural diplomat, mm-hmm. um, a cultural broker, which was a term that actually somebody that we interviewed earlier this week used to describe themselves as well. Oh, okay. um, that type of work where you're maybe intentionally taking a neutral stance or a more neutral stance for the sake of saying, hey, this side, come talk to this side. Let's let's bring together these dialogues mm-hmm. um, versus perhaps an activist stance where you're, you've got a platform. You've got a really, uh, you've got a list of, of needs, of demands. And now that I'm saying these things, you know, diplomats have those too. <laughs> maybe they're secondhand agendas or maybe it's maybe the way you convey that power. Maybe a diplomat, um, because they're coming as a representative, they they already have their seat at the table versus an activist who might be saying, let me to the table. I, I'm either going to build my own table if you don't give me a seat at this one, but I, I don't have the voice that I need right now. Does the desire to 
kind of bridge different cultural practices and your fluency, your ability, which I feel like is really unique to be able to traverse these different spaces and kind of be unbothered by some of the the issues that you might have. You mentioned being a person of color in a, in a largely white institution and, and kind of having a real unbothered attitude about that. And maybe I, I have no idea. I can't, I can't put myself in your shoes and know about, I know there's a lot of issues at Hugsy around um, microaggressions mm-hmm. and how students of color are having a very different experience than their white peers mm-hmm. in a, an institution like Hugsy. Um, but is that, that desire to kind of, and the ability to fluently go between sides and to try and bridge things, does that play into the advocate role versus is that part of why you're you're going towards that lane versus the activist? You better ask the question, girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. I thank you for hearing that, for sharing that, and for for prompting um, that kind of questioning for me. Um, so my, my my dad influences a lot of the way I walk about <laughs> the world, and I, I've shared this with him. I think we did a reading in AIE, the Herbert Cole, I Won't Learn From You, really captures why I kind of have this understated, but I think divine righteousness about how I can walk in any space mm-hmm. and don't give it a right to try me. Though it is trying, not to say I don't see it and I can't call it out. Knowing that my dad went to predominantly white institution in the late 60s and was, there was no such thing as a microaggression. I didn't even know that language. I came to Hugsy to be real. I'm like, I don't know. I just know when people being funny or they not. (laughs) 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 But that's not, that's not how we speak in academia. But knowing the price that my dad paid to actively not learn and to be an activist at Cornell College and that that cost him his enrollment and to have talked with him about how he wouldn't do it differently. I don't get to come to Harvard and get punked by Harvard. Okay? These are not fictional shoulders that I stand on. These aren't ancestors wildest dreams ancestors that I don't I don't I've never met this is my dad (laughs) you know like how I'm going to come to Harvard how I'm going to be in any space and I've been in plenty of spaces where I've been the youngest thing the brownest thing the most female thing and had to figure out really quickly how I was going to navigate that but also advocate for me and also shut things down by using people's language that they didn't think I had access to the real cost of actively going I'm going to wage some demands, I'm going to put some things on the line, and knowing that those costs were literally made by my parents. Dear Harvard, dear American University, you're a building, you're an institution, you do not define HF Church. That definition has been like forged by divinity, and so I kind of have that going on. And actually, when I was here, a student said something real strange to me, and I'm still chewing on this. I did not agree with what a professor was doing the way they were conducting their class. So I I let this professor know directly that I had some issues with the way that the class was being structured and conducted. And I knew other people had murmurings and whisperings. And then I was sharing this with a classmate who um, is white. And she was like, oh, that's easier for you to do because you're black. And I was like, I don't really know what you're trying to say right now, but I'm just going to pause us from going down this route. Any professor here is supposed to interact with me. It's supposed to listen to me. Whether we at Harvard or any other institution, 
I cannot cede my power to some positional power. It's just not up for grabs. I am my father's daughter in that way. He didn't give a care. I got that gene. That's a gene that can be encoded into like some DNA code. I got that one. And so I'm not always going to be like snapping back at somebody really loudly, but I also pay attention to language and to cues and to, for whatever reasons, I understand when and how to code switch. I feel comfortable being that diplomat that will go, well, I have a space here. I'm going to use it. I'm going to acknowledge that somebody else carved this space for me. So I don't want to do a disservice to that. I don't know if that's about it being more comfortable for me to be in the advocacy lane, but it is where I am. Maybe in five years, we circle back and I'm doing more activist, what I think are squarely activist things. I'm thinking again a lot like my dad. Like I don't have, I'm not shutting down a building. I don't have a list of demands. I'm not taking over the airwaves of a campus radio and going this, 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 that, and the other. But I'm going, hey, somebody wants you to teach this class. Okay, great. I see that syllabus. I raise it 50. I have one other question just (laughs) in this vein, because you also talked about the hip-hop pedagogy. Nima and I, again, are active AIE students in the current cohort, and Aisha came in and did a a session for our course on on hip-hop pedagogy. Regardless of how much you think you may know about hip-hop, hip-hop pedagogy is and isn't what you think it is. It's definitely worthy of investigation, which is why we're going to be posting an in-depth article about it on our website. That's palettepodcast.com. And we did question and grapple with how do we honor the value of this pedagogy when for some students it's going to be appropriation Mm -hmm. and for some students it's a real legitimate pathway that they may bring into their classrooms and can do so quite naturally. I'm not positive what my question is. I hear it though. <laughs> but in there, how do you how do you grapple with that? And when you're coming to give a conference mm-hmm. and you're welcoming the public to come, but you do have to I don't know, I don't want to say draw boundaries. I don't want to say but I know, hear all the barriers on yeah. it. But what do you what do you do? How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's great. Talking to some other folks who've been seeped into this work, especially in 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 higher ed with with hip hop education and opening up for study, is there is I think like an inherent tension there. Like hip hop is not forged in the walls of academia. Mm-hmm. It is almost antithetical to that. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think sometimes when people go to conferences, they need to get they need to sit on their hands. Like, people go and they're like, oh, you're doing something, feed me, I'm going to do the same thing when I go home. No, you're not one, you're not me, what? Like, (laughs) (laughs) why does that make sense? Like, I don't play the cello. Just because, what, I'm working with Patrick, now I think I I know everything about the cello. Like, what? Calm down, sit on your hands, lady. Like, that is not you. (laughs) Be informed, be, take something that is generative of that and ask self, is this something that um, I can do? And then ask self, why do you need to do it? Like, why can't you use all of your 21st century critical thinking and research skills and look up someone who is more of the expert in the area and ask them to build with you, to think with you, to 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 challenge you and to temper out so that nothing does become appropriative or co-opted like in the practice. If hip hop education and pedagogy is like super looking super sleek and sexy to you, and you also catch yourself going, I'm not sure I can do this. There's not an ask or a mandate that you do. The ask is to go, how have I been ignoring hip-hop in my classroom as an asset? 
How have I been labeling it as a deficit, as a don't do? That may mean that you never do any type of hip-hop education-based lesson. But if you can stop and ask yourself, have I been limiting its its currency in the room for 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 my students who are bringing that in as a language if I've been limiting that what's the work I can do to be a better designer of my learning environment maybe that's in giving more choice for students to show what they know in ways that are that are a strength for them when I am in space to talk to people about hip-hop education and hip-hop culture in the classroom, I'm advocating for an opening up for you as the teacher to think about what are you limiting. If you're not sure where to go from that, sure, I can point you in the direction of some resources, i.e. books, articles, videos, and people, but please don't suddenly go, that Asia lady said, if you ain't doing no hip-hop pedagogy, you surely is hurting your students, and so I better just make something up. Let me just Google something real quick for an hour, and then I'm going to just slap this on please don't do that either like if you're doing that stop right <laughs> you could literally be a voice character actor though <laughs> do you want to be on this podcast forever <laughs> you so, have voices for days well this because i you know i entertain them a lot on my own um <laughs> so actually like this is a great like provocation and something and talking with the students who are who are helping we're working together to put the conference on this year we want to actually give space to talking about that very tension and that line of this is not saying everybody needs to suddenly five, six, seven, eight, Google their nearest hip hop curriculum on the web and put it in their classroom. That would be probably more detrimental to the to the environment and to the learning and to the flow. And it, it's not that's just not good. But we want to bring in experts who are practicing this in different spaces and have them be able to exchange with the audience members and, and ask those questions and wrestle with that. And wrestling with people who are doing this in higher ed, like this is, it's its awesome and it's strange at the same time. I would say on the other end, I think it's been awful and strange how much we have not been challenging how education happens still mm. in 2018. And yet we turn out people to go into classrooms, to go into community centers, to still be doing this very saviorist based type of thing that is prioritizing certain languages and meanings of um, meaning making lenses. And so let's also stop doing that. Thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate your conversation, perspective, wealth of knowledge. Yes. Little drop. This is AIE history in the room. Real. Real. Do we do that? Where's the air horn? <laughs> we'll, we'll add that in post. But we don't even need to, but I'll probably put one in post. I'll put one in there for you. Yeah. <laughs> this has been great. I really applaud you all, like, being part of that taking up of like making something institutional that is absolutely necessary not even I think for AIE but just the whole ed talk with good people podcast world and so thanks for inviting me on thank you thanks for coming mix. I've got to say I've been fangirling over Asia since first semester and I'm so happy to have finally gotten her on the podcast so that we can have a real conversation. Absolutely. I love talking with Aisha. She's so inspiring and hilarious, and she has so much wisdom. If you guys want to find out more about Aisha, you can follow her on Instagram at Aisha Dances. She spells her name A-Y-S-H-A. And if you're in the Cambridge or Boston area, on April 27th and 28th, there will be a conference taking place at HGSC where Aisha will be presenting her hip-hop pedagogy. It was referenced here in this episode, and again, you can find out more about it via an article we'll be posting on our website, palettepodcast.com. 
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram as well, at Palette Podcast. Bringing you that primo content. That's right, baby. Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you for being on the podcast, Asia. See you next time, everybody. See you later. That's a wrap, Jerry. Cut it.